Share Prophets, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards. This is the Share Prophets Radio Show, episode 14, for the 16th of October, 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifred. It is indeed Tom Winifrith uh, coming to you from Wales, albeit only by 30 yards, with the 14th edition of Share Profits Radio. This show is one with a difference in that I have no guests at all on the show. It is just me and my dulcet tones. I do this because it has been a momentous day in the world of finance, momentous day for Share Profits, uh, a vindication of our four-year campaign of exposing Neil Woodford. And the bulk of this podcast will deal with Mr. Woodford. It will deal with where he goes, where the funds he mismanaged so badly go, and it will deal with the failings uh, of numerous bodies, most notably the FCA. Uh, However, for the mainstream press, the big financial story of the day has been Thomas Cook. Uh, You know, that firm that went bust, drowning in debt, uh, just a few weeks ago. Its now former CEO and now former chairman were in the Houses of Commons today, being grilled by a select committee. Uh, The focus of that grilling and of the mainstream press reportage was, how come this company went bust? Uh, How come it had so much debt, yet was paying out such obscene pay packages and especially bonuses uh, to its executives, most notably the now former CEO? Uh, There is indeed an issue here, uh, and it's one that is writ large across FTSE 350 companies and across large companies across the world. And that is the misalignment of interests between those who are managing those companies uh, and shareholders and other stakeholders. I don't think there are many people listening to this podcast who would begrudge uh, big pay packets and big rewards for entrepreneurs those who risk their own capital to set up a business. But almost none of the people who are running FTSE 350 companies today are entrepreneurs. They're just super managers. They went to good schools, they went to good universities, very often Oxbridge, and then they went to work for KPMG or an accountancy firm, they went to work for investment banks, or they went straight into business. But they went in as managers. They never risked any of their capital. Uh, There is now a culture where these people are paid the sort of salaries which we wouldn't begrudge to entrepreneurs, but which really cannot be justified for people who are just super managers, uh, or in the case of Thomas Cook, not very good managers. How does this scandal arise? Well, who would put a a check on such executive greed? Uh, One might hope that it would be the non-executive directors Uh, of such firms who would say, this just isn't acceptable. Non-executives are meant to be there to look after we ordinary shareholders. But the non-executive system doesn't work that way. Uh, It tends to be that uh, some fellow, he's uh, chief executive of one company, and he becomes non-exec of a couple of others. And then the chief executive of a couple of others become non-execs of a couple of others. It's a merry-go-round. It's the same pool of people. 
There's a lot of whittering about how you need to get in outside talents. We need to have more female non-execs. But the same, the female non-executives are drawn from the same pool of people as well. It doesn't matter what is between uh, uh, the legs of non-execs. It's what's between the ears that matters. And there is no culture of independence if they were to clamp down on executive greed at a company where they're non-execs then what's going to happen when they try to get a pay rise at their own company? Uh, it's a culture of piggery and greed with a small select of people. The non-execs have failed. Uh, then what about the pay consultants? Uh, you'll find that the huge pay rises and huge pay packages which uh, directors of large companies get are usually justified by the fact that the board has gone out to pay consultants, outside consultants who decide what would be suitable remuneration. Well, you're not going to hire uh, pay consultants who are paid-up members of Momentum uh, 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 and who will come with a conclusion that your pay should be cut. Uh, these people are hired to justify the unjustifiable. They compare the pay at your company with pay of similar companies, which is obviously obscene as well, and decide that you need to be paid obscene amounts. They are paid to rubber stamp the greed of the executive directors and the non-executive directors who are all part of the system. They are a complete waste of space. They allow boards to justify, uh, with seemingly rational, independent reports, uh, the unjustifiable. Uh, the real failing, of course, is with institutional shareholders. It's very hard for you or me as a shareholder with a couple of thousand quids worth of shares in a big company to kick up a fuss and say, I'm going to go to the AGM and try and get executive pay curbed. Uh, we can't do that. But institutional shareholders could. Institutional shareholders could have gone to the board of Thomas Cook and say that your pay packages are unjustifiable. Had they acted in concert, they could have curbed it. But of course, they never do. Uh, fund managers tend to be very well-paid individuals themselves. Uh, they always back management. If you tried to oust a management team, you'll find that the fund managers always back the incumbents, or nearly always back the incumbents. Uh, and most fund managers are delivering fairly mediocre returns. As it happens, they're just matching the market, matching their peers. Uh, so they see nothing wrong with a grotesque overpay for mediocre returns. They have failed in their duties to protect shareholders. For me, the real lesson of Thomas Cook is not executive greed, but it's that pernicious heroin-like uh, addiction to debt which society has. It's been fostered by uh, quantitative easing and by near-zero interest rates, which we've enjoyed over the past 10 years. Humans are like goldfish when it comes to interest rates and financial conditions. We kind of think, well, what's happened for the past few years is going to carry on forever. And that has encouraged people to take on debt. If you've got too much debt, what do you do? You borrow some more. Uh, you don't need to think about repaying it. You don't need to think about servicing it because the cost is so low. That has been the culture, not just in corporates, uh, but in governments, and I'm afraid to say in individuals across the West for most of the past decade. In the UK, saving rates are at 70 or 80 year lows uh, and levels of personal debt are at all time highs. Why is that? 
because we all think interest rates are going to stay incredibly low forever. You have to be my age to remember interest rates being in double figures and how that affected you if you had a mortgage. People, if you speak to people under my age, under 50, they just think interest rates are going to carry on at this level forever. And that is the way that corporates have gone. Therefore, corporates spend money on pointless acquisitions, Thomas Cook being a case in point. They spend money on uh, share buybacks, even if their shares are already trading on crazy multiples, because it boosts short-term share performance and executive option plans. It boosts the short-term performance of those fund managers uh, who we mentioned earlier. And they do all of this with debt. It's not creating sustainable uh, uh, growth in the business. It's not creating real assets which can drive profit growth. Uh, You just take on more and more debt. And that's one of the lessons of Thomas Cook. I sense that the era of easy money is coming to uh, a close. It's all very well taking along uh, on a lot of debt and assuming that low interest rates will be pervasive forever. But if you get some macro headwinds, you start seeing a dip in revenues and you have operational gearing kicking in. So you see a massive uh, dip in profitability and free cash flows. Suddenly, servicing that debt, let alone repaying that debt, uh, starts to become a bit of an ask. There are an awful lot of companies in the UK and also in the US which are overborrowed and have racked up those borrowings, acquiring assets which will not generate any cash flows going forward, either those pointless acquisitions uh, or those share buybacks. Uh, When uh, macroeconomic conditions get tougher, or if interest rates were to go up, they will struggle. In the case of Thomas Cook, it was those macroeconomic conditions getting tougher. I suspect also uh, something of a duff business model to boot. And suddenly, the debt became unsupportable. There was no way it was ever going to repay or repay it. And frankly, it was unable to service it. That, for me, is the lesson of Thomas Cook. And that's what I think MPs should be asking uh, more widely. Uh, how many British businesses are overborrowed? Uh, what are we going to do about it? Why are executive management teams being allowed to take on so much debt in their businesses? Uh, and uh, 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 why are the fund managers, why are the non-execs, why are they not exerting more control over it? That's the real lesson of Thomas Cook. Needless to say, it is one missed by the mainstream media. This podcast is brought to you for free, and this week it is sponsored by a PLC. I have no problems in taking sponsorship from this uh, PLC because it's a company I believe in. It's a company I actually own shares in. That is to say, Open Orphan PLC. Uh, its CEO, Cathal Friel, was on uh, Share Profits Radio a few shows back, uh, edition eight, if you want to look it up. And he gave a very clear uh, vision of how his company was going to grow and how it was going to become profitable in a material sense by next year. Open Orphan used to be a company, Ven Life, which was a complete and utter dog, but it had real sales. It just didn't make any profits. Uh, Friel has already applied some tough love to the business, uh, and he has uh, taken out costs and improved margins. And so organically, the company is edging towards the point where it will be profitable. It will compound that with a buy and build strategy, and it has a strong balance sheet with plenty of cash. As I say, I'm a holder of the shares. I'm well ahead on my investment. 
Uh, the shares are now 6.6p in the middle, uh, and I would be looking to hold them uh, into well into double figures. Uh, if you want to find out more about Open Orphan, uh, uh, you can either listen to the eighth edition of Share Profits Radio, or uh, you can follow them on Twitter at Open Orphan. Uh, do so. Uh, and uh, uh, you will uh, get a constant stream of news from the company. Thank you very much to Open Orphan and Cathal Friel for sponsoring this show. And now on to the real subject matter today, Neil Woodford. It is the biggest scandal in the fund management industry for decades, if not ever, in the history of British fund management. As a reminder, Neil Woodford uh, was a fund manager at Invesco for many years, And by the early part of this decade, he was known as Britain's Buffett. Well, well, he wasn't really, uh, but he liked to be called Britain's Buffett by a fawning media. Uh, In about 2014, he left Invesco to set up his own business, Woodford Investment Management, uh, which fairly quickly built up the funds under management to well over £10 billion. Some of those were his own funds, led by his flagship equity income fund. Uh, There were other funds who he managed uh, uh, for other people, notably St. James's Place. Uh, Today, uh, Mr. Woodford was fired as the manager of the flagship equity income fund, the fund having been gated in early June because it was unable to meet redemptions. The fund will now be wound down. Uh, and I would expect about half of the three billion which remains will be returned to investors in January. That is the liquid assets, the cash, the FTSE 100 stocks, they will be sold by BlackRock. The rest of the fund, the illiquid assets, the unquoted companies, the outright frauds, uh, the joke companies uh, will be disposed of over time. It may be quite some time, and I very much doubt that their 1.5 billion book value uh, will be the realizable value. It could be as little as 300 million or 400 million, and investors could have to wait months and months and months, if not years, till they get their final payout. Late in the day, uh, it was announced that Mr. Woodford had resigned as the manager of the Woodford Patient Capital Trust where I am uh, the owner of 10 shares, having bought those shares so that I could go to uh, Mr. Woodford's AGM on May the 16th in Oxford, where I gave him a very hard time and where he accused me by name of uh, publishing fake news about his various enterprises and denied that he had a liquidity crisis. Uh, His flagship fund was, of course, gated two weeks later. Uh, He also resigned as manager of the Income Focus Fund, a small fund, which was worth £457 back in June, uh, but thanks to more disastrous stock picks by Neil Woodford uh, and also a constant stream of redemptions, uh, is now worth about £250 million. I suspect that the redemptions at Income Focus will be a tsunami over the next few days, and it will pretty soon be worth well under £200 million. Anyhow, he's resigned from those two posts. Uh, He'll be doing an orderly handover over the next three months, uh, which means we will get to see. He will have to file uh, one final set of accounts for Woodford Investment Management uh, uh, for the calendar year uh, 2018. Uh, Those results, those accounts will be out 
by Christmas, or is it for the year to March 2018? It's the year to March 2019. Those accounts will be out by Christmas uh, and will show the extent of his greed in terms of dividends. But to all intents and purposes, uh, Neil Woodford is out of the fund management industry. He's out in absolute disgrace. Uh, he has probably made around about £100 million personally from Woodford Investment Management. Investors have lost billions. He's disgraced and shamed. And it is the fall of someone who was Britain's best-known fund manager. It's a story which we've covered on share profits since 2015, when we first gave an explicit warning that people should sell their units in his unit trusts uh, and not invest in Woodford Patient Capital Trust, the investment trust. That was back in 2015. Since then, we have published something like a thousand articles and podcasts on Mr. Woodford, uh, and we have exposed him at every level uh, for things which he has done, which have been either crazy or, in my view, in some cases, crooked. So uh, where do we start with this story? We start uh, with when Woodford set up Woodford Investment Management. He had previously been at Invesco, and he'd made his reputation, uh, certainly in the late 90s and the noughties, uh, by investing in blue-chip companies, value investments, in unloved sectors, companies which were profitable, generating cash, paying dividends, but were somewhat unfashionable. In due course, the cycle turned, and they became more fashionable. So not only did his investors get to enjoy those bumper dividends, but there was also a re-rating of those stocks. It was classic value investing. Woodford famously didn't take part in the dot-com madness. He got that right. Uh, he avoided the banking crisis of 2008. He got that right. All of his value investing uh, seemed to mark the man out as a genius. However, in his latter years uh, at Invesco, uh, he sought to improve the beta somewhat, the performances funds, to outperform those other value investors by investing in biotech companies, by investing in smaller companies, taking very large stakes in those companies, by investing in unquoted companies, taking large stakes in unquoted companies. It peppered his performance because for a while uh, uh, those investments were flying. One of the natures of investing in illiquid stocks, of course, is that when they're going up, they go up a lot. Uh, but when they go down, when there's a buyer's strike, you discover they're lobster pots. It's almost impossible to get out. Certainly, it's impossible to get out if you have taken a very large position. That wasn't his problem at Invesco. He got out at the right time. His successor, uh, managing the funds at Invesco, has had to pick up the pieces. One of the interesting things about Mr. Woodford's departure from Invesco is that the day after he left, Invesco was handed a huge amount of fines by the FCA for numerous regulatory breaches. Uh, those uh, breaches appear to have been largely in funds managed by Neil Woodford. This was the first failing of the FCA. I see no point in the FCA or indeed any other regulator fining a company or fining a, either a, a bank or an investment manager or indeed any company for doing something naughty because it's not the company that does something naughty. It's not the investment manager that causes regulatory breaches. 
It is individuals. It is individuals who break the rules. It is individuals who, when they're running companies, tell lies. It is individuals uh, who commit fraud. It is individuals who should be sanctioned. That was the first big failing of the FCA. It shouldn't have fined Invesco. It shouldn't have slammed it for its regulatory breaches. It should have fined Neil Woodford. It should have slammed him as an individual for breaches and funds which he was managing, where he was paid a huge salary and a huge bonus for managing. If you get the upside, you get the downside as well. He should have been sanctioned, he should have been named, he should have been shamed, and the FCA should have taken the view that a man who behaves in this way is not fit to manage money. It did not. Woodford was perhaps too big to touch. For whatever reason, the FCA chose to do nothing about it, and it granted him a licence uh, to manage money at Woodford Investment Management. The first fund was equity income. Uh, because Neil Woodford was Britain, Britain's Buffett, he got an amazing press. Uh, the Deadwood Press could not have, be, have been stronger and more explicit in its advice to its readers uh, to buy units in the fund. The Mail on Sunday was the cheerleader-in-chief, uh, its correspondent Jeff Prestridge uh, uh, being the cheerleader-cheerleader-in-chief, but all of the Deadwood Press was equally culpable. All of them said you must have exposure to Britain's Buffett, to Neil Woodford. Hargreaves Lansdowne, which looks after more retail investors than, than any other fund platform, was also explicit in its support of Neil Woodford. It has been suggested by people like Terry Smith that the reason that Hargreaves Lansdowne endorsed Woodford so strongly, uh, but not Mr Smith, who has delivered quite superb performance, is something to do with the fees that Mr Woodford was prepared to pay and the fees that Mr Smith was prepared to pay. Uh, that, I'm sure, is a complete and utter coincidence. Hargreaves Lansdowne believed in Neil Woodford unquestionably, unquestioningly, told its clients they must have exposure. And indeed, in large numbers, in vast numbers, something like 130,000 Hargreaves Lansdowne clients invested in Woodford. Huge numbers. One can forgive this at the beginning, although the unquestioning enthusiasm of both Hargreaves Lansdowne, the Deadwood Press and certain other high-profile cheerleaders uh, is something which perhaps uh, they won't look back on with enormous pride. The net result was that Mr Woodford received massive inflows in his first couple of years. I suspect he just didn't know where to put all the money. Uh, but he didn't uh, put it all into value investments. This was a strange thing which should have rung alarm bells right from day one. Uh, the equity income fund is one, if you look at the title, which should be providing you with growth, that is the equity element, but also income, that is to say, it should have been invested entirely in dividend-paying stocks. Uh, Mr Woodford didn't quite go down that route. Uh, a large portion of the fund, or a material portion of the fund, was invested in unquoted companies, startups, companies that were guzzling cash and weren't going to pay a dividend uh, for many, many years, or in biotech stocks or technology stocks, again, companies which were guzzling cash and were not going to pay a dividend. 
Mr. Woodford justified that by saying, yes, but these companies, they may be little acorns today, although they were hugely overpriced acorns, but they will one day uh, become great oaks. And at that point, they will be paying great dividends. I'm a patient man. We can afford to wait. Judge me on a five-year view. Looking at the business models of a number of the companies he invested in, uh, one or two were outright frauds. Uh, but uh, looking at the business plans of the ones that weren't outright frauds, it seems to me unlikely that any of them were going to pay dividends within five years. Uh, but Mr. Woodford glossed over that. That should have been something that set alarm bells ringing. Uh, but nobody questioned it because it was very difficult to question it. In the early months or the first year or so of Woodford, uh, anyone questioned him was thought to be daft, churlish, spiteful, jealous. No one dared question Woodford. I first questioned Woodford in 2015. I was unnerved by what had happened at Invesco. And also, I was unnerved by quite what he was investing in. It just didn't seem to fit uh, the bill of what an equity income fund should be investing in. Uh, excessive exposure to unquoted, excessive exposure to biotech and healthcare stocks, which didn't pay dividends, and excessive uh, exposure to tech stocks, which also didn't pay dividends. It just didn't seem right. Uh, from 2016 onwards, uh, I was joined in my attack by Cynical Bear, who wrote for Share Profits, uh, some quite exceptional work, and also by Nigel Somerville, who is our stalwart uh, Neil Woodford correspondent to this day. And we started looking at some of the companies which he had invested in, companies which just seemed to be quite ridiculous in their business plan. That, again, should have set alarm bells ringing. Uh, there was uh, RM2, a company that was going to disrupt the world of wooden pallets. Uh, a wooden pallet costs £5 uh, to buy. RM2 was going to produce high-tech pallets, which would cost you 60 quid. Uh, the advantage of them was that if someone stole them, you'd be able to track them with the tracking device. I'm sure you can see the flaw in this business plan. Uh, no one really wants to steal wooden pallets. They're stolen very rarely. But if they are stolen, you just get another one in and it costs you £5. The RM2 proposition was crackers, yet Woodford invested in it. Uh, there were equally daft uh, propositions to disrupt the world of drinking water uh, or to disrupt the world of washing machines or mattresses. Companies whose business plans were clearly insane. And we revealed those uh, uh, time and time again on Share Profits. Again, uh, this was from 2016 onwards. This should have set alarm bells ringing. What on earth was a value investor doing putting large sums of money, tens of millions of pounds, into such enterprises uh, when uh, their business plans were insane uh, and there was clearly no chance of them paying a dividend, yet they were in funds which promised dividend income. It was crackers. The problem Woodford had was that he invested, uh, uh, he was setting himself up for a liquidity crisis. Uh, why do I say that? Uh, the Woodford business model only worked on the assumption that 
he would be able to sell on uh, these disruptive investments at higher prices to bigger fools because the bull market in equities would carry on forever. Moreover, it was reliant on the assumption that he would never face redemptions, people who had invested in their unit trust wanting their money back. But instead, that cheered on by the Mail on Sunday and Hargreaves Lansdowne, people would continue to throw money at his businesses. And uh, he forgot that if you invest in cash-guzzling enterprises, as he did on an industrial scale, uh, those cash-guzzling enterprises will come back asking for more and more money. And if you are the cornerstone investor and you don't provide that money, then you're going to see massive dilution and hits on your net asset value. He forgot about all of those things. And so by 2017, he was starting to face something of a liquidity crisis. At that stage, redemptions weren't a massive feature, but they were starting to crop up on the uh, horizon, and the inflows were starting to slow badly. Why was that? Because the performance of the fund was abject. Uh, That was uh, largely down to bad stock picking. Uh, Woodford invested in companies where there were clear problems. One thinks of Provident Financial, Uh, Even after companies like Provident Financial and Keir admitted to their problems and admitted that things could get worse, Neil Woodford thought he knew better and threw more money in. He averaged down on his bad positions. Uh, That uh, caused his funds to underperform, uh, which meant that he faced more and more redemptions. Uh, and fewer and fewer inflows. At the same time, uh, those gaggle of cash-guzzling businesses kept on demanding his money. How was he to deal with that? Well, from 2017, uh, he dealt with it by selling the good stocks in his portfolio uh, in order to fund the redemptions and also the cash needs of the cash-guzzlers. That was his mistake. And I think in 2017, he could, he could have turned the ship around. He could at that stage have said publicly that he had made a few errors, he'd invested in a few bad things, and that he was changing the focus of his fund, uh, and that he was going to start selling the cash-guzzling companies. He was going to start selling down his unlisted uh, investments. Okay, he would have taken a hit on it, but he would have stemmed the, uh, uh, he would have reduced the amount of his portfolio which needed cash, and he would have been able to hang on to blue chip investments like Lloyd's Bank or AstraZeneca, which in the end he had to sell in order to fund the redemptions and the uh, cash needs of the cash guzzlers. In 2017, he also started to have a problem uh, with his limits in unquoted stocks. If you run a unit trust, there are certain rules which you are forced to abide by. You're not allowed to have 10% of your fund in any one stock. Uh, More importantly, you're not allowed to have more than 10% of your fund in unquoted stocks. Uh, If you breach those rules deliberately, that's called uh, a deliberate breach, and you are in deep trouble with the FCA. If you breach them inadvertently, uh, then you are in trouble with the FCA, but they give you time to work out the problem. Woodford breached the uh, uh, 10% rule inadvertently. He breached it because his unquoted investments were not suffering uh, markdowns. Uh, They would hold their value. Indeed, as we'll see later, they actually increased their value artificially in a number of cases. 
Uh, but uh, uh, his quoted investments were suffering markdowns because he had just invested in the wrong stocks. Moreover, he was suffering redemptions and therefore having to sell quoted investments. All of that saw him face a problem with his 10% limit. Woodford tried various wheezes to get around that. Uh, There was the wheeze of pretending that a company would uh, list within 12 months, and that allowed him to call it as being quoted. Uh, If it didn't list within 12 months, uh, on a couple of occasions, he sold all his shares in the company, then uh, bought them back, and then started the clock again, calling it quoted because it was going to list within 12 months. We've seen that uh, 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 on a couple of occasions. That was a wheeze. It was an obvious uh, uh, fiddle of the rules, but Woodford was allowed to get away with it. Uh, There was the attempt to list uh, certain classes of shares on the Channel Island Stock Exchange. Uh, The only shares that were being listed there were ones held by Neil Woodford. Uh, No other shares were listed there. Woodford wasn't selling and no one wanted to buy them. But technically, they counted as being listed investments for a while until the FCA said this is ridiculous and put a stop to it. That was another attempt to get around the 10% rule. That happened in 2019. In 2017, uh, Woodford uh, got another wheeze, which was that he sold unquoted investments held in the equity income fund to Woodford Patient Capital Trust, his investment trust, where there was no limit on the percentage that could be unquoted. Uh, This was a bad deal for Woodford Patient Capital Trust, since it meant that it lost uh, liquid investments uh, in listed companies uh, and had to pay Woodford uh, and got in return unquoted investments from Woodford. The deal was obviously a flawed one. Woodford uh, Equity Income Fund was a forced seller. Uh, Woodford Patient Capital Trust didn't have to buy this stock, uh, but it did. It should have been able to uh, get a real bargain. It should have screwed Equity Income Fund on the price it paid. Instead, uh, they were just transferred at whatever carrying value Woodford thought fit, the current carrying value. It was a deal which clearly screwed Woodford Patient Capital Trust. But Neil had set Woodford Patient Capital Trust up with a board of his cronies, of people who were dependent on him for support in their own enterprises. So they just waved it through. They screwed their own shareholders, and those deals were the architects of Woodford Patient Capital Trust's current liquidity crisis. Uh, But Woodford did it as a wheeze to get around that 10% rule. This is another failing of the FCA. Uh, These wheezes were all exposed by share profits. We pointed out at the time that they were wheezes, that they weren't real, uh, that they may have ticked a box round at the FCA, uh, but they certainly weren't in the spirit of law and they weren't dealing with the real issue, which was the illiquidity of equity income fund caused by excessive exposure to unquoted. Uh, They might have ticked a box, but they didn't deal with the issue. The FCA should have been proactive. It wasn't. It ignored our warnings. Moreover, it should have been highly proactive uh, in looking at the dealings between Equity Income Fund and Woodford Patient Capital Trust. 
Clearly, one party in this deal was being screwed, and it was Woodford Patient Capital Trust. There was a massive conflict of interest there. This happened in late 2017. We flagged it up on share profits. The FCA did nothing about it whatsoever. The directors at Woodford Patient Capital Trust should be fired and should be prosecuted for their failure to look after shareholders' interests in agreeing to this deal. They did nothing about it. No pressure was brought on them uh, by the FCA or indeed uh, by other institutional investors in WPCT. Nothing was done. There is uh, indeed worry on the subject of the unquoted investments. Uh, another aspect of Woodford which we flagged up at the time, and that is the way that he talked up his uh, own asset value with regard to unquoted investments as a result of some very strange deals. There are two case studies here which we've highlighted. There are numerous. Uh, industrial heat uh, is one where Woodford just increased the net asset value, not because of any tr- uh, the carrying value in his book, not because of any trigger event, but because he believed that a trigger event would happen in increasing, uh, writing up the value uh, of uh, industrial heat in this respect. Uh, he boosted his own assets under management and therefore the fees that Woodford Investment Management was able to charge. His own bottom line, his own pocket was boosted uh, with this artificial write-up. Now, without Woodford to bail out this fine enterprise, uh, uh, the chickens are coming home to roost. The value has had to be written down, but not before Woodford made money. There are two more uh, explicit examples of Woodford coming up with what I would regard uh, as criminal valuation exercises. The first is a company called Benevolent AI. It's a joke company in many ways. I find it hard to take it seriously. Uh, The first Woodford investment came with about £40 million being put in uh, back in 2015 at a valuation of $150 million. That was perhaps a reasonable valuation. I don't know if it was or wasn't, but one could make a case for it. Four months later, four months later, uh, there was another funding round. Uh, Just $7 million went in. Woodford put in uh, some of the money, and another related party put in uh, another party, a related party to management put in the rest. It was a tiny funding round, but it came up with a valuation of $1.15 billion. In just four months, the value had been written up dramatically. The effect of this, of course, was that the value of Woodford's initial investment uh, went up massively. That went up nine times or whatever, uh, eight times, nine times, which meant far more fees were generated for Woodford Investment Management since it charges a fee of 0.75% of assets under management as a management fee every year. So there was a big bottom line benefit for Woodford Investment Management. Uh, A little bit at that same stage or a few months after that, uh, Woodford transferred £50 million worth of shares in Benevolent AI from equity income over to Woodford Patient Capital Trust at that much higher valuation, which was only justified by this tiny funding round, which was done by Woodford and a party connected to management. Woodford Patient Capital Trust was being screwed. It handed over uh, uh, 50 million quid's worth of listed investments at mid-price, 
Uh, Woodford Investment uh, WPCT was again screwed uh, to benefit equity income, which was struggling with its 10% limit. There was a subsequent funding round valuing the business at $2 billion. Uh, This was even stranger. Uh, Some of the money came in from uh, a business partner of Benevolent AI and went straight out again as assets were bought from that business partner. So no money was, in fact, invested. The rest came from Neil Woodford. Uh, That funding round, I think it was $150 million, uh, gave the business a value of $2 billion. The big winner from that... Well, of course, it was Woodford Investment Management. Uh, its initial investment, back at $150 million, was now a 15-backer or a 14-backer. That meant massive increases in the fees which Woodford Investment Management was able to charge for managing its funds. Was that $2 billion valuation real? No, it was clearly a related party deal. Uh, it should have been ignored. Uh, Benevolent AI has recently uh, secured a new funding from an external partner at less than a billion dollars. Big write-downs in the carrying value within the Woodford stable, but it doesn't matter for Neil because he's already banked the huge fees. An even more ridiculous case uh, was a company called Proton Partners. It's now known as Rutherford International. Uh, Again, Woodford put money in at a pretty low valuation here. Uh, I think it was $65 million, and again, it's $150 million sterling. Uh, but by, uh, this, uh, by earlier this year, by February, the company was effectively insolvent. It was also an unquoted investment uh, within both WPCT and the Equity Income Fund. The chances of this insolvent company paying a dividend were obviously absolutely zero. But it was difficult because the company was insolvent. It had debt. It had net debt. And it had huge capital commitments and was making huge operating losses. Uh, So it was insolvent. Woodford was facing big write-downs. But there was also the issue that it was sitting there, whilst not uh, yet insolvent, as an unquoted uh, constituents of the equity income fund. And he was again over the 10% limit. What to do? Well, Float it. So a plan was hatched to float it on the next exchange, a very junior exchange in London, but that would at least have made the business uh, quoted. So it would have helped Woodford with his 10% problem. A valuation was set of 344 million, and the company announced via its poodles in the Sunday Times that it was to raise 50 million quid. Unfortunately, no one in this whole world wanted to put a cent in. Uh, Therefore, the company went to Woodford and said, can you help? Now, had Woodford not made the initial investments, had he had no exposure to the business, uh, he might have helped. If he was indeed drawn to the technology, and for what it's worth, I'm not. If he was drawn to the business plan, and for what it's worth, I'm not. But he could have helped. But he would surely had he had no existing investments, have said, well, you can't raise money from anyone else at 344, so how how about I put in money at a much, much lower level? But of course, Woodford did have investments in Proton already at much lower levels. Uh, So what he did was he agreed to put in £20 million and committed that the funds he managed would put in an additional £80 million, which would be enough to keep the company from going insolvent for another year to fund all its capital commitments 
and its operating losses for at least a year after flotation. By that stint, uh, the company was floated with this ludicrous valuation of $344 million. The net effect was that Woodford was able to shift uh, Proton Partners, now called Rutherford International, from being part of his unquoted portfolio to being a quoted portfolio. No shares have really been traded. The total value of shares traded in Proton Partners since its February IPO is £352. Uh, the market cap, thanks to Woodford having put in a lot more money, is now £400 million. Surely it is the most illiquid stock on this planet. Yet, under FCA rules, it counts as being a listed investment. He's got through the 10% limit. More importantly, by uh, buying into this 344 million valuation, the, the float price of 227.5p, which is exactly where the shares are still today because they never trade, by buying into that, Woodford was able to increase the carrying value of his investments from the earlier funding rounds which benefited the net asset value of both Woodford Patient Capital Trust, but also the equity income fund, which meant that Woodford Investment Management was able to charge even greater fees for the equity income fund. To me, this is just a crooked deal. I challenged him on it at the AGM of Woodford Patient Capital Trust, and he said, yes, but we got independent valuations validating that 344 million valuation. Well, yeah, it's all very well saying that you've got some patsy to write a report saying that 344 is the right price. But if no one else is prepared to put a jelly bean into the company at that level, and the company is facing going bust within weeks, uh, you have the whip hand, Neil, as the only potential funder. This was the point I made at the Woodford Patient Capital AGM. You could therefore have de demanded that you get in at a much lower price. That he didn't was solely that he could he could write up the value of his earlier investments and make more money personally as a result of the management fees. As it happens, uh, Rutherford has drawn down most of that eighty million uh, commitment which Woodford Funds committed to, uh, but there's still thirty two and a half million undrawn. Uh, I don't think it will be able to get that money now, since Woodford now manages no funds. Uh, that will be a problem for Rutherford. It will not be able to fund its capital commitments. Uh, it will not be able to fund its operating losses. Uh, it could well go bust. Certainly its shares are untraded. Who else is going to put money in uh, to the company at all on a $400 million valuation as it faces potential insolvency within months? Uh, surely, uh, uh, if anyone does put in money, it's going to be at a fraction of that level, an absolute fraction of that level, maybe 40 billion, maybe less. That will see massive write-offs for Woodford, uh, for Woodford's equity income fund, and of course, uh, uh, for the Woodford Patient Capital Trust. It will show what a farce the whole exercise was. Neil's already banked his management fees uh, for, for seven or eight months on the basis of the higher valuations. He doesn't care. Uh, but for unit holders, it will be a disaster. And again, it is another failing of the FCA that they allowed this transaction to be seen as fit and proper uh, and to believe that the company should be classified as a quoted company when, to all intents and purposes, it was an unlisted security. It's certainly an untradeable security. The FCA could have stepped in. It did not. 
but the nature of the transaction, one which is bound, absolutely bound to cost investors money, but made Neil even richer, is surely something the FCA should investigate. Desperate times, I suppose, call for desperate measures. So we had these fake listings on the Channel Island Stock Exchange, the Proton deal, the revaluation of industrial heat, uh, 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 the uh, benevolent uh, uh, AI transactions. These were desperate measures. In normal times, Woodford were not considered. No one would have considered them. But these were desperate times to talk up the net asset value, to perhaps hope to stem the tide of redemptions. There were other signs of desperation which crept in, uh, and a case in point was Keir. Uh, the company ran into a few problems. Neil was already a big investor. What did he do? Uh, he bought more money. He bought more, put more money in. Even though the company faced clearly critical problems, it was bound to scrap its dividend. Uh, it was possibly going to need a refinancing. It was, to all intents and purposes, utterly fucked. But Neil continued to average down. When I saw him doing this, my thoughts were back to uh, uh, Rab Capital, Philip Richards, back in the financial crisis. He knew his fund was doomed. He knew uh, that he was facing massive redemptions. He knew that he wouldn't be able to feel, uh, face those redemptions. What did he do? Northern Rock announced that it was more or less certain to go bust. Richards waded in and bought an 8% stake. It was a Hail Mary pass. Uh, had it worked, and I can't think of any reason why it would have worked, but had it worked, uh, Richards would have had a multi-bagger and a liquid multi-bagger, which would have brought in a lot of cash for his funds, and he would have been able to tell the world that he was a genius. He'd had a bad patch, but he was now a genius again. I think uh, Woodford's investments in Keir, Provenant Financial, perhaps another case in point, uh, are ones where he was just throwing those Hail Mary passes in the final months. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, as with most Hail Mary passes, they didn't work. Desperate times, desperate measures. So we've established, I think, the root of uh, uh, Woodford's problems. It was all to do with liquidity. Uh, back in 2017, he could have steadied the ship. He could have admitted his errors. He could have repositioned the fund. There was still time. Uh, but by late 2017, he is already doing these crazy revaluations uh, upwards of unquoted investments. He's shifting uh, assets between his unit trust and his investment trust on deals which looked utterly crooked. Uh, and then he's doing stunts like Proton Partners uh, and the Channel Islands things. By then, the writing was on the wall. The flood of redemptions became a tsunami. There were daily features, uh, the level of redemptions in the equity income fund. And that just made his liquidity crisis worse. Gradually, all the family silver, all of the FTSE 100 stocks, or nearly all of the FTSE 100 stocks, were sold. Uh, those, of course, were the companies which had the best yields, that paid the most in dividends, which meant that the yield on the equity income fund got lower and lower. But it wasn't just that he'd invested in companies like Care or Provident Financial, which had to cut or scrap their dividend. That was bad stock picking. He was selling some of the higher yield in his, yield in his funds because they were the most liquid uh, stocks within the funds. 
in order to meet redemptions and also the cash calls from the guzzlers. So the yield on the equity income fund fell lower and lower. It got kicked out of one index because the yield was too low. He clearly was not doing what was on the tin, and that caused more redemptions. Uh, By 2018, by early 2018, clearly he was in a spiral of decline. The dodgy deals, the desperate measures, the collapsing dividend, the bad stock calls, the Hail Mary passes, the increasing illiquidity of the portfolio uh, were just uh, putting him in a spiral of decline. So what do we learn from all this? Firstly, where do the funds go? Well, equity income, uh, the liquid uh, component of it, which I suspect of the current $3 net asset value, I suspect about half is in liquid uh, stocks. That's going to those called Pool A. BlackRock will sell those stocks starting on January 17th and distribute the proceeds net of cost, which I think will not be immaterial, to unit holders. I think that $1.5 billion will probably raise about $1.4 billion for investors, and they'll get checks in late January. That's the good news. Uh, the rest of the portfolio, the illiquid stuff and the unquoted uh, stuff, well, that's a problem. That's going to be dealt with by a separate firm, and they will realize the proceeds over time. There are some stocks in there which are going to be complete write-offs. Uh, Rutherford International is obviously a stock that springs to mind, but there are others which will be complete write-offs, both the unquoted stuff and also some of the uh, low-level uh, uh, quoted stocks, companies like Xeros Group, disrupting the world of washing machines, Eve Group, disrupting the world of mattresses. <coughs> Those are companies which are running out of money, and Neil Woodford was the cornerstone financier. Without him there, they are probably going to go bust. Uh, There is a list of those sort of companies, uh, and it will take an eternity to get rid of those uh, positions uh, if they are disposable at all, if they don't go bust first. So the question would be, how soon will the proceeds of Pool B uh, be realised, and how much will be realised? I fear it could be as little as 300 million. It might be 500 million. Uh, And it could take a couple of years. Uh, That is what investors will get back. What about Woodford Patient Capital Trust? Well, uh, that's got problems too. Not least of which, of course, is the fact that uh, in Pool B of the Equity Income Fund is a large stake in Woodford Patient Capital Trust, uh, which Woodford picked up when he threw, uh, uh, sold five unlisted investments uh, to the Woodford Patient Capital Trust earlier this year to deal with his 10% rule, to help deal with his 10% rule. At the AGM on May 16th, Susan Searle said, there is no way on earth that the equity income fund is a four-seller. Neil Woodford chipped in, we have no liquidity crisis. Well, I think we can see that that was a big fat lie, wasn't it? Uh, To be fair, uh, I did point out at the time and at the AGM that that both of them were talking rubbish, and they are talking rubbish. Susan Searle should be resigning as chairman of WPCT uh, for buying into that rubbish and for spouting it at the AGM. Uh, That stock overhang won't help the Woodford Patient Capital Share Trust, uh, the Woodford Patient Capital Trust, Uh, uh, share price. But the real issue there is the net asset value. The last stated net asset value was 65p, down from 96p at uh, the 
uh, uh, start of June. What is the real net asset value? Uh, well, we published a piece on share profits uh, yesterday, uh, which suggested that it could be as low as 3p. The problem is that Woodford Patient Capital Trust has gearing. Um, it's got around 111 million of debt. Uh, it has relatively few listed investments. Uh, there is a hefty stake in Rutherford International that's listed, but totally unsellable. It's got, uh, I think, about 45 million quid's worth of shares in Autolus, uh, which is a complete joke company listed in the US. Uh, but the average daily volumes in Autolus is $100,000. So that's going to take a little bit of a time to liquidate. Uh, and then it's got a few other bits and bobs, uh, which are pretty much untradeable. Uh, then it's got the unquoted investments, which are, by definition, utterly untradeable. Uh, it's going to be a real struggle for this company uh, to uh, uh, liquidate those investments at anything like book value. And the banks are breathing down the neck of WPCT because it is almost at its gearing limit. I suspect it only needs one more disaster, uh, and that could come at any stage from a number of the companies within the portfolio, and the gearing limits will be breached. At that point, if I was the bank, I would force WPCT, now that it's not employing Neil Woodford, uh, to go into an orderly meltdown. It should just run off its portfolio, uh, firstly to pay off the debt, and then to return uh, what is left, if indeed anything is left, to shareholders. Our in-depth study on share profits yesterday, uh, uh, compiled uh, at my request by a resting fund manager with experience of this sector, uh, suggests that the net asset value could be 3p. I think some of his assumptions, by the way, were generous. He valued Atom Bank, the stake in Atom Bank, uh, at 5p per share. I think the true value is 0p per share. Uh, others, well, maybe he was too cautious. Uh, 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 he was too conservative. We won't know. There is clearly a range of the estimates of what the NAV is. Uh, anything from minus p. Uh, through to maybe 20p. Uh, but would you be buying the shares at 36p, given the toxic nature of this portfolio, the toxic nature of anything to do with Neil Woodford? Uh, certainly, you would not. Uh, the current stated net asset value is a work of fiction worthy of Jeffrey Archer. Finally, of course, there is the Income Focus Fund, uh, it was worth 457 million at the start of June. Uh, the net asset value as of today, it's just over 250 million. I suspect there will be quite a few redemptions uh, announced tomorrow, uh, but redemptions based are based on people who put in sell orders by noon of today, that is the 15th. So the 16th net asset value, I suspect maybe it's down to 240. The tsunami uh, of redemptions will start tomorrow. Uh, will have been this afternoon on the 15th, will be on the 16th and be on the 17th as people digest the news that Woodford has quit to, and digest the news that the equity income fund is not going to be ungated but is going to be run off. The clear implication is that the income focus fund will also uh, face a similar fate and the tsunami of redemptions could be massive. Uh, Income Focus Fund does have quite a lot of liquid blue chip stocks in it, but it also has an awfully long tail. 
I would have thought if Redemption's got to 100, and 100 million or 150 million, maybe even 125 million, uh, the company would be unable to meet Redemption's in an orderly manner, and it too uh, uh, would have to be gated uh, uh, pending an orderly wind down. Uh, it's not going to be pretty. Uh, and as the company redeems uh, investments, uh, it'll start with the FTSE 100 stuff. But as it moves out into the FTSE, FTSE 250 stocks and then lower, of course, uh, as a foreseller with everybody seeing him coming, seeing Woodford coming, uh, you will find that it will be achieving far less than the current mid price. And therefore, the NAV will fall still further. Uh, if you are in income focus fund, get out tomorrow morning before it's too late. Uh, so it looks pretty bleak for all of those investments. Where does it leave the various players in this saga? Well, we can start with the FCA. Uh, their first blunder was giving Woodford a license in the first place after what happened at Invesco. But they were warned. They were warned explicitly uh, by this website from 2015 onwards that there were real issues. What the hell was Equity Income Fund doing investing in so many non-dividend-paying stocks? Bizarre. Surely that should have rung alarm bells. By 2016-2017, we were warning of the absolutely crazy investments and of the looming liquidity crisis. By early 2017, that was evident to us. We were writing about it. So why wasn't the FCA doing anything about it? It could, at that stage, have had words with Woodford. And if you're a fund manager and the FCA says, we're having a polite conversation with you now, Neil, or Mr. Fund Manager, it could happen to any fund manager, we're having a polite conversation with you now about what we'd like you to do. And if you don't do it, we're going to force an arrows visit. We're going to come in with a full-scale inquiry and we'll make your life a living hell. You do what the FCA tells you to do. They could, the FCA could, in early 2017, have turned this around. It could have told Woodford what to do. It opted not to. And then it ignored further red flags, the crazy upward valuations of unquoted investments, the, the deals with Woodford Patient Capital Trust, etc. It ignored those despite numerous warnings on this website. The FCA has again been shown to be asleep at the wheel. We saw it and we've seen it time and time again. This website, uh, you may know, uh, was commended by other regulators for its work on exposing the Quindell fraud, the biggest stock market fraud for 30 years. Uh, we proved that the company was committing fraud in all sorts of ways. And we passed that evidence to the FCA. There were numerous emails sent to the FCA. The FCA did nothing about it, absolutely nothing about it. Uh, the SFO was on the serious fraud office, was on the case months and months and months before it announced that it was launching an official inquiry. The FCA didn't do anything about it until uh, 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 it was way, way, way too late. It was asleep at the wheel. The FCA has been asleep at the wheel over the mini-bond scandal. We've had uh, a couple of mini-bond providers go bust. There's a whole lot more which are going to go bust. We've covered them on this website. Our prediction is that Blackmore Bond will be the next one to go bust. But there are a whole raft of dodgy mini-bond providers we have covered on this site. Again, the FCA has done nothing about it. Uh, there's been a uh, talk about do, uh, taking action, but well after the to try to stop the horse escaping, well after the stable door has been bolted or whatever the phrase is. Again, it's a sleep of the wheel on that. 
the FCA is asleep at the wheel on all sorts of frauds, which we have alerted to from this website. It is not fit for purpose. The blame must be at the top. Uh, the chap who runs the FCA, I gather, wants to be the next governor of the Bank of England. Uh, he shouldn't be allowed to be the next toilet cleaner of the next Bank of England, given the uh, failings of the FCA on Woodford and on numerous other matters. But there needs to be a change of culture around at the FCA. I have uh, uh, pointed this out before. Uh, there is a girl I once went out with who has a relatively senior position at the FCA. I will spare her blushes by not naming her. She's a nice girl. Uh, she's the sort of girl uh, who wouldn't dare park on a double yellow line. And I'm afraid the FCA is staffed by people like that. It's stuffed with people like that. They're good people. They've worked as lawyers or accountants, and they wouldn't dream of doing anything wrong. So they're, they're unable to think about people who will uh, uh, spoof the system by getting bogus listed on the Channel Island Stock Exchange. They can't conceive of how people will commit fraud. The FCA somehow needs to reach, reach out to sinners like myself uh, and allow us to become whistleblowers uh, and somehow uh, uh, reach out and do its job properly. It is not fit for purpose. It has been failing with Woodford from the get-go, uh, but there are clear uh, points at which it could have acted and stopped it, but it didn't. The FCA has a lot of questions to answer. The Deadwood Press, I know it's an easy target, but the Deadwood Press only started being nasty about Woodford in 2019. Some of them didn't even start uh, until June of this year. The Mail on Sunday wrote a supportive piece about Neil Woodford, uh, the latest of many hundreds which it has done uh, over the past few years, saying, yes, I know his performance has been bad, but he is Britain's Buffett. He'll come good in the end. Stick with him. Uh, it wrote its most its last supportive piece the day before the equity income fund was gated. The Deadwood Press have been asleep at the wheel. Uh, needless to say, they will give share profits no credit for our 1,000 uh, articles and podcasts exposing Woodford. But they have been asleep at the wheel. This is part of the corrupt culture of the Deadwood Press. Uh, journalists, uh, being idle bums, uh, uh, like to be given scoops. They like to be given exclusive interviews with Neil Woodford. Uh, they like to be tipped off about what the great man is buying so they can relay it to their readers. And the journalists have been served these scoops, these exclusive interviews, and in return have turned a blind eye to the bad things that have been going on at Woodford Investment Management. I know that most of the Deadwood Press are subscribers to share profits, so they've read about it, but they've turned a blind eye because they prefer to get their scoops and stay in with the PR people. Uh, they have covered themselves in no glory. Hargreaves Lansdowne uh, really has covered itself in no glory. We now know... Uh, that the in-house funds of Hargreaves Lansdowne started to reduce their exposure to the Woodford funds from early 2019. At the same time, uh, the Hargreaves Lansdowne, a committee of the great and good at Hargreaves Lansdowne, including those who were running those funds, were recommending to their hundreds of thousands of retail investors that not only should they hold their unit trusts in Woodford, but they should buy more. And that's an appalling conflict of interest. Uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne has waived its fees uh, for those people trapped in equity income. And it has said publicly that it is sorry, but it needs to review its systems. Uh, it needs to have more transparency on its pricing. 
uh, of uh, the uh, money it makes from uh, selling various funds to its retail investors. To me, there's a fundamental conflict of interest. How on earth can you be recommending uh, uh, that retail investors buy something which your own in-house funds are selling? Because uh, it's only able to sell, uh, those funds are only able to sell uh, if they know there's a liquidity crisis in, in, in a Woodford fund, they were only able to sell because new monies were coming in. Uh, from retail investors. That's a horrible conflict of interest. It strikes me uh, that there are no Chinese walls between uh, the in-house funds at Hargreaves Lansdowne and its uh, advice to its retail clients. And that needs to change. Uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne should perhaps consider a demerger of the two operations uh, because they do not sit well under one roof. Uh, and I'm afraid its apologies do not wash. There are structural issues uh, around at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Where, I suppose, we should ask, does this leave Neil Woodford? Well, I have no sympathy for the man. Uh, he has made in excess of £100 million from Woodford Investment Management. You will remember that he sold his share, most of his shares in Woodford Patient Capital Trust at 45p in July. Uh, he came out with some excuse about how he had to pay a tax bill. Given the vast amounts that Neil Woodford has taken out of Woodford Investment Management, that simply does not wash. I do not believe you for a second, Neil. You may have had a tax bill to pay, but you didn't have to sell your shares in WPCT to pay it. Uh, uh, so I have no sympathy for you. I have even less sympathy because it is quite clear, as with Proton, Benevolent AI, etc., you've engaged in a series of transactions which have screwed your shareholders but have artificially inflated the net asset value in a very temporary way uh, of your funds, and therefore allowing you to make more management fees and you personally to enrich yourself. I have no sympathy whatsoever for you for the predicament you find yourself in. You will, in three months' time, be out of the fund management industry, winding up Woodford Investment Management. I suspect you will be surrendering your permissions and never working in financial services again. I think it's exceedingly unlikely the FCA would allow you to work in financial services again. If you don't surrender your personal license, you'll lose it. Uh, that is blindingly obvious. But should something else happen to you, Yes, I think something else should happen to you. I'd hope that the FCA would now consider a full-scale inquiry. It would look at a number of the transactions which took place. In fact, I hope it has the resources. It's got thousands of employees, and they're not all total factors. Uh, I hope that it would put a big team into looking at all of the transactions involving unquoted investments, uh, their revaluation, uh, uh, their revaluations over time. How come you were able to revalue investments in Company X on the basis of anticipated progress when other investors weren't making that revaluation? Surely there's something wrong with that. I hope they'd look at that. I would hope they would look at uh, things like Proton, uh, Benevolent AI in particular, but also at a whole raft of these transactions. I hope they would look at the transactions between WPCT uh, and uh, 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 EIF. And if they come to the conclusion that you have engaged, Mr. Woodford, in transactions which have personally enriched you, but which have uh, personally impoverished your unit holders, 
And then I don't know what law has been broken, but it strikes me something's been broken. Some law has been broken. You have behaved badly. And I hope they throw the book at you. Uh, uh, You deserve uh, a stiff financial penalty, and I'm sure those could be levied on you. Um, And personally, I would like to see you go to prison because I don't think it is acceptable that uh, a unit, uh, a managers of uh, unit trusts engage in transactions which make them richer uh, and make their unit holders poorer. Uh, surely uh, prison is, is the place you deserve to spend the next few years. I doubt that will happen. Uh, there will be people who are saying this raises wider issues about the unit trust industry. Are they suitable investments? By and large, yes, they are suitable investments, people. I don't like the upfront charges. You have to pay sometimes up to 5% for some unit trust. That is regrettable. Uh, But they are a a suitable investment. They should provide liquidity. You can buy or sell at NAV every day. So they should be a good source of a good type of investment. The problem occurs when the underlying assets are illiquid and when there is a liquidity crisis. That is why I've always argued that it is crazy that you have unit trusts which are invested in commercial property because those assets are by definition illiquid. And when there is a mass of redemptions, as people get nervous about the market, those funds get gated. It has happened several times in the past couple of years, in the past few years. So I don't believe that certain asset classes are suited to unit trusts, but unit trusts invested in equities, I see no problem with it at all. This is not about the city. It is not about the culture of the city. It is not about an industry which is in need of reform. Uh, the Neil Woodford saga is a, scum, uh, is a story about one bad man. Well, I suppose his business partner, Craig Newman, seems a bit of a rotter too. But it's about a couple of bad men. It's about one firm which behaved badly. And it is about the individuals who ran that firm. Uh, that is what needs to be addressed, uh, as well as the uh, uh, palpable failings, uh, yet again, of our regulator, the FCA. Those are the issues that need to be addressed. Anyhow, share profits is vindicated. I've got a lot of stick over the years uh, for exposing Woodford, as indeed to exposing Quindell, Globo, and all the other frauds. Uh, uh, but I think today we stand uh, vindicated. And Cynical Bear, Nigel Somerville, and myself should be very, very proud of our exposés on Woodford over many years. That's it on Woodford. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, listening to this uh, edition of Share Profits Radio. Uh, uh, I'm losing my voice after all this time. Uh, it is, uh, as we say, brought to you uh, thanks to the kind sponsorship of Open Orphan PLC, where I do have some shares. Uh, follow them on Twitter at Open Orphan. Uh, listen to Cathal Freel explain the investment case, which I believe in very soundly, uh, in uh, Share Profits Radio Edition 8. Um, I shall be back in another week uh, with another edition of Share Profits Radio where I will have some guests and we won't talk all about Neil Woodford. Uh, if you've enjoyed this and you'd like to hear more uh, from me, I do a daily bear cast on Share Profits. Uh, you have to pay to access that. Five ninety nine gives you a month's access to Share Profits. That's a bear cast a day and nine other articles or rather more uh, on uh, the 15th, thanks to Mr Woodford. And you can access our entire archive of a 1,000 Neil Woodford, Woodford articles and podcasts uh, and see that we really did call this 
far earlier than anyone else. I, if you're a cheapskate, I will speak to you again in one week's time on Share Profits Radio. Uh, if you want to invest in uh, true investigative journalism uh, and support the work we do, sign up to Share Profits, five ninety nine for a month, and enjoy tomorrow's Bearcast. Speak to you in a week or a day. Bye bye. Can't you see?